like when I when I started with OK, uh, the legends about uh, K5 were that Arthur Whitney implemented this entire language in about 400 lines of C. So I was like, all right, well, I, John, a normal programmer, ought to be able to write an implementation of this in about a thousand lines of JavaScript. And I did. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with me, I have four panelists and a special guest that we will get to introducing in a few minutes. But first, we're going to go around and do brief introductions. Let's first go to Bob, then to Stephen, then to Adam, and then to Marshall. My name is Bob Terrio, and I am a J enthusiast. I'm Stephen Taylor. I Q at APL Programmer. I'm Adam Bosevsky. I teach and write APL code. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I'm a former J programmer and a dialogue developer and now BQN developer. And as mentioned before, I'm Connor Herkstra. I'm a research scientist at NVIDIA, but a polyglot programmer and enthusiast of all array programming languages. So I think at the top of the episode, I'm going to throw it to Steven, who is going to sort of make an announcement or a mention of something that's happened in the past week. Well, we are sorry to note this week, the passing of Fred Brooks, who, with Ken Iverson, who designed APL, uh, taught the world's very first computer science um, course at Harvard in, was it 1960, late 1950s? Uh, they wrote for that course uh, what must have been the world's first textbook for computer science, uh, which turned into two books, Automatic Data Processing, as data processing was what we used to call it back in the day, and a book about the notation used in the first course. Um, and the book was called A Programming Language. It described Iverson notation and eventually became the name of the computer implementation of Iverson notation. Fred preceded um, Ken to IBM. Um, Fred was Fred managed the development of the System 360 operating system and um, later achieved widespread fame as the author of The Mythical Man Month uh, and in 1999 was awarded the Turing Award uh, at, just as Ken Iverson had been pretty much the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for software. Uh, great life, well lived, sorry to see him go. Great to have known. And uh, in, in some personal reflections, uh, Ken Lettow um, had uh, was part of a, a documentary that uh, uh, Catherine Lathwell had been put to, putting together in 2012. And part of that was Ken and, and Catherine had a chance to actually interview uh, Dr. Brooks. And uh, Ken had sent this, this email out, which I'll read now. So I was lucky enough to have spent a few hours with Dr. Brooks while helping with an interview, Catherine Lathwell did, with him discussing uh, Ken Iverson at APL in 2012. Dr. Brooks was incredibly engaging, had a great laugh and a sense of humor. During a break in the interview, I asked Dr. Brooks about the famous Dijkstra APL coding bums comment and why it seemed that Dijkstra was so bitter towards APL. He quickly corrected me. He wasn't bitter. So I offered overly critical, and before the word critical left my lips, he proclaimed hypocritical in his amazing southern, southern draw. 
I was instantly laughing at his response. He went on to say that he wasn't really sure why Dijkstra had such a seemingly dim view of APL outside of maybe, quotes, it wasn't invented here syndrome. It was a meeting I will never forget. And and uh, from reading, uh, I think it was also a Vector article on the passing of, of, of Ken Iverson, um, it was also mentioned that... Um, Dr. Brooks and, and Ken were very, very close. In fact, Dr. Brooks named his eldest son after Ken. So there was a real, real strong connection between these two individuals. And, and I agree with Stephen. It's very sad to see these um, pioneers passing away. But, but that's what happens when you have a language that's, that's uh, been around for a long time. And it does show how uh, brilliant these guys were, that they came together and created these things that we still use today. I, I would say we should be happy that they were there. Without them, we wouldn't be here. As you mentioned, the book APL, but pretty much all of modern computing depends on Fred Brooks. He he said that the decision or design that he was the most proud of was introducing the eight bit byte. We take it so for granted, like we can't even imagine computing without an eight bit byte. But he introduced that, and 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 the system three hundred and sixty design that he oversaw uh, became the precursor for all modern computing all other types of architectures just disappeared after that. And everything we have today is basically a descendant of this, of this 360. And then we, of course, wouldn't be here because without the 360 and the design document for 360 written in Iverson notation, there would be no APL. And the first, the, the first proper APL was the APL 360. And I, I mean, they studied together, Iverson and, and Brooks studied together under um, Professor Eichen, and Brooks uh, was excited to become the teaching assistant for Iverson. And I'm sure as they were so close, that was also why I suppose it was Brooks, at least he must have been involved in it, chose Iverson to write up or provide the tools for writing up the formal spec for the for this new computing system, which by the way, was an all-in that IBM did. IBM was bidding everything on the 360 and succeeded. And that's where we are today with computing. So in many ways, we would not be here. Just the technology we're using to record this wouldn't be here. As an implementer, it is uh, really incredible to... Uh, so if you implement an APL today, you say, well... All right, the user sees 64-bit floats, but underlying that I have um, 64-bit floats and 32-bit ints and some smaller ints and packed Booleans. And then um, looking at the APL360 implementation, I saw, well, in fact, it's the same. They had 64-bit floats and 32-bit ints and packed Booleans, so they skipped the smaller integers. Um, but what's re really incredible is that that was the very first machine that did that. So. Fred Brooks is there uh, pioneering the uh, the system that still works today and is still super fast back in uh, the 60s. Yeah, the quote, um, standing on the shoulders of giants, comes to mind. Um, and clearly Fred was one of those giants. So I think there is a, a service that's being held and recorded and 
played online that we will link in the show notes if it's available by the time this podcast comes out. And even if it's not available, we will retrospectively go back and add a link when it is available for those that want to um, go and watch that service, um, as he will cl- clearly be greatly missed in, in the, I think, CS community at large, but also his, his family and friends will miss him dearly. It's being live streamed on YouTube right now as we record this. Okay, yeah. So it, it, the link should definitely be available uh, by the time this pod com- podcast comes out. Um, with that said, then, we will transition into our announcements uh, for today's episode. So I believe Adam has three, uh, Bob has two, Marshall has one, and then Statham, or Stephen has, has one. So three, two, one, one. Let's start with Adam and then go around. Okay, just quickly, um, the Dialog 22 user meeting, um, all the videos are now available online. There is course.dialog.com, which has been around as a work in progress for a while, but it's now been updated to be a proper introduction self-study course. Check it out. Um, And then uh, Richard and I recorded the third episode of the APL Notation as a Tool of Thought podcast now available is it is it a podcast podcast oh, yet or still just I, a youtube channel podcast i knew you were gonna ask that no i still need <laughs> to figure out how to do that somebody suggested on on reddit that it has the wrong the content type or something that's why it can't be published but i'll look into it eventually it's all right you keep poking the bear until uh <laughs> until the bear uh responds and uh you know that's how that's how things get done you know i'm like a project manager here you know i just uh <laughs> Are you blocked and uh, trying to unblock you? That's all. Thanks. All right, over to over to Bob. And uh, my announcements. Uh, you may remember that uh, Rodrigo uh, had been doing transcripts for us, and he, and he has moved on from dialogue, and he's moved on from doing transcripts for us. And once again, we thank Rodrigo for that. In his stead, we have two new people that are helping out with transcripts. Um, we have Sanjay Chandrian and we have Igor Kim, and we thank both of them for stepping up from the community Ooh. and helping out with the transcripts because it's great to have other people to to uh, shoulder the burden. And, uh, and, and much thanks to them. And my second announcement is that my long-awaited <laughs> prototype, JWiki, is up. And it's there for people to look at. And uh, what we're doing is we realized that the JWiki had just a tremendous amount of information and loosely organized, I would say, uh, which made it very hard to find things. So our response has been to create navigation bars and essentially a navigation route through what I think of as a front end of the wiki, which should satisfy most people. And we are not getting rid of all the old archive pages, so you'll still be able to do searches and get that stuff, but we're hoping to make it more accessible. And in the show notes, we'll put a link to the prototype. Um, And in fact, if you go to the existing wiki, there's uh, on the sidebar, there's a link that'll take you to the prototype, and you can see what we're proposing, and we are looking for feedback now. So if you have opinions on that or routes to go or things that should be added, this is a great time to get in and mention them. And then I would say in the next month, we will be looking to trans uh, transition into this sort of front end to the wiki, makes it a little bit easier to get around. And most of the stuff that everybody's looking for will be sort of front and center. And the stuff that may have aged out will still be in archives. And there's just so much information there. It's amazing. But that's my second announcement. Very exciting. I'm on the wiki now. Found it. It doesn't have good SEO right now because uh, there's already two wikis, I guess. 
but it looks very nice, very colorful. I'll have to poke around this um, yeah. in the next couple of days. Anyways, over to Marshall. Or you're going to say something, Bob? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah. The, it, it essentially we do have two wikis that we're running. We won't be changing the address of the original wiki, so we're just going to build this front end onto the original wiki. So gotcha. this has been a prototype that we've been working through. All right, Marshall. All right. Um, so my announcement. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we were working on this uh, REPL XX integration for CPQN, um, and that's now done. That's merged to the main branch. So if you uh, get clone BQN. Um, you can build it. All you have to do is um, instead of doing make, uh, you add an option REPL XX equals one that's listed in the readme. And that'll build with an integrated REPL. So if you just then run the BQN executable, you get a um, REPL that has uh, syntax highlighting, it has BQN input, and it has uh, some name completion, which will probably be improving in the future. Um, so that's really fancy. Uh, I've now been using this for a little while and uh, I find it really easy to use. It's uh, nicer than the uh, the old solution of just using RL wrap. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's the new thing in BQN. And last but not least, one announcement from Stephen. No, I want to be part of this new merged entity, Statum, with the increased memory and processing power. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be much better. Uh, a while ago, some of you may remember, KX was having trouble with abuses of the uh, license on the community edition, and there were some restrictions placed on access. That's now been sorted out, and if you go to kx.com, you'll find you can download the personal edition very easily. Yeah, I just did that the other day, and it uh, worked great. And back up and working on my my local workstation. All right, so with all of those announcements out of the way... Uh, our guest has been patiently waiting in the wings, um, and I'm very excited to talk to him today. He is, I guess, the second individual. We've referred to two individuals that were hired at some point, I believe, uh, by 1010 uh, Data. Um, but this individual is John Ernest, who I'm guessing by the title of this podcast episode, you already know by now. And he is also known by the uh, pseudonym IJ, which stands for Internet Janitor. We'll have to ask about that and how, th how that came to be. But more importantly, is the uh, creator of uh, the JavaScript K implementation, OK. I think there's a list on either the APL wiki, uh, or maybe it is actually the K wiki, of a list of the open source K implementations, because obviously Arthur Whitney implements his own, you know, K1 through all the way to Shakti. But along the way, there have been implementations. I believe um, Stephen After had a K3 implementation that he called Slack that was built on top of Combinators that was sort of a side project-y thing, um, or maybe not a side project to him, but like a hobby project. But um, OK, I think, is one of the more of the well-known open source implementations. I think Kona is also one of them. So we're going to talk about that a ton. It also refers to Special K that is not linked to on the APL wiki, but we'll get to ask about that. And uh, into, uh, looking into John, he's done a ton of stuff in terms of game creation and um, sort of GUI uh, applications. He, I think, worked on one, one thing called IKE or Ike, which was sort of a programming environment for K. So tons of stuff around the K ecosystem. And um, yeah, we're going to link a really cool article that has some visualizations of some of the K stuff that John has done, which is fantastic. It was posted on the uh, Vector website. So with that, I will throw it over to you, John. Take us back to whenever you want to, when you were born, when you started programming, uh, you know, whatever point in your timeline, and tell us how you got to, you know, sort of falling into K land, if you will, and implementing uh, a K sort of implementation. 
Sure. Well, um, let's see. I was born at a very early age. Um, <laughs> for uh, for a long time in, in kind of my early history, I didn't really have very much access to um, computers or information about computers or adults who could teach me about computers. So um, I spent a, a meaningful portion of my childhood like in uh, in the public library, reading a bunch of random assorted books about computer stuff that I kind of a little bit understood, but uh, most of it didn't really make very much sense. Um, the first computer that I had that was mine was a Macintosh SE that I literally rescued out of a dumpster. Um, and so that that sort of colored a lot of my a, a lot of my early experiences with things were kind of um getting secondhand or uh semi-busted uh computers that were already obsolete by the time I had them but it you know it meant that I had unfettered ability to fiddle with them to the extent that I could figure stuff out um I ended up uh going to college eventually and uh, I got a degree in computer science um learned a bunch of things uh that I didn't know um but uh, I think a lot of my my formative programming experience was just kind of like long years of pounding my head against the wall with nothing to consult and slowly figuring things out. Um, I uh, did a couple of jobs uh, after college. Um, one uh, one job was this sort of small shop that was a consultancy doing a whole bunch of um, contract work for different companies. And that was a very enlightening experience about how little I understood about programming and uh, and technology, basically getting sort of uh, paradropped into these new environments to do some consulting project and having to spin up on a whole bunch of stuff, get used to a new team culture uh, from the relative convenient safety of, you know, not actually having to go work at all these different companies. Uh, and um, eventually I uh, sort of took from those experiences. I, I decided that uh, I would go uh, back to grad school and work on a master's degree and sort of flesh out these areas that I hadn't, um, I, I had discovered gaps in. Uh, in my theoretical computer science and and practical programming sides. Um, and as sort of a, a side effect of having the kind of free time that the specific kind of free time that a grad student has, uh, I got really deep into um, fourth, uh, which is a, an interesting sort of minimalist language. It's one of these um, like er languages that sort of uh, arrived at one point and then um, influenced a huge number of of languages that came later and coming from a, a different uh, taxonomic tree than uh, a lot of mainstream things. Sorry, what was the the word? What kind of language? An er language? And yeah, like like a, a primordial sort of thing. Um, like you are are uh, like like you are you are. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the fourth is all about building uh, like the, these tiny minimalist systems where you sort of collapse all of the layers of complexity together. You throw out everything that isn't absolutely necessary. You, um, you know, you, you you program in direct harmony with the machine. And it's as much 
kind of a philosophy of a, a way of doing things as it is a specific language. If you if there are n fourth programmers in the world, it's a common adage that uh, there are at least two n plus one implementations of fourth. Um, and and so uh, I, I think the like. I gained a lot of aesthetic appreciation for minimalism from uh, from getting deep into fourth. And I, I guess another thing that I sort of took away from it was it kind of uh, opened my mind and removed a lot of biases about what constitutes reasonable syntax for a language, because fourth is a very unusual looking uh, language. It has uh, sort of you know you you have tokens that are separated by white space, and that's it. That can be anything one can be the definition of a word. And so I guess in retrospect, that sort of planted the seeds for me to eventually be able to encounter something like K and accept it on its own terms instead of having the kind of knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have to uh, the first time they look at uh, one of these APL-derived languages, because it's, you know, they're uh, they certainly have beauty that you can learn to appreciate, but it's so alien that a lot of people just kind of shut down when they first encounter one of these languages. So I read this article called Impending Chaos, which is a story about this sort of eccentric genius programmer named Arthur Whitney. And it painted this, this very, to my mind, romantic uh, view of, uh, you know, the, this this guy with a unique style of programming that was very dense and very efficient. And, and he was on the cusp of releasing this new version of the language. And I thought it was very, very intriguing and appealing to try to learn something from Arthur's approach to programming. Um, and I was completely dissatisfied with the fact that I could only play with the older versions of uh, of the language that was sort of a concretion of Arthur's style. Um, so I resolved that I was going to use the little scraps of information that existed about K5 at the time, the unreleased nascent version of uh, what Arthur was working on, and try to sort of rebuild that from first principles. And uh, there, there's good documentation available online on K2, um, and so I started with getting most of uh, most of a K2 implementation together over a, a long snowed in winter break one year. Um, and then I started kind of growing it in the direction of K5. I had example programs that Arthur had you know posted on his website or given in an interview or something. And so I knew what had to work in order to make that program meaningful. And to a moderate extent, I was able to work backwards and sort of graph things onto to K2 and, and grow it in that direction. Um, and eventually uh, a, a bunch of, uh, enough people sort of bullied me into trying to reach out to uh, to Arthur with this thing. Uh, so I, I sent him an email uh, and he sent me back another email that was like a couple of sort of penetrating questions about how I had done certain things in my interpreter. I answered those as well as I could. And then uh, he emailed me back with just an FTP address and a username and password. <laughs> and then I downloaded, uh, I, I logged in and I downloaded a K5 binary. And from that point forward, it was then um, 
continuing to build up okay as a a black box you know uh clean room re-implementation of the same thing i could observe its behavior and then try to replicate that um so kona was the first open source k implementation and that was sort of uh targeting k3 uh which is also the dialect of the language that I ended up using professionally to get a little bit ahead of myself. So, so OK was targeting uh, K5, which is a little bit different, but of, of a similar lineage. And just to help keep things straight, um, OK is your implementation. Kona is uh, someone else named Kevin Lawyers, Lawlers, right? So yeah, Kona, Kona is a project by, by Kevin Lawler. Um, what was actually kind of interesting is that not that long after I was working on okay and had that publicly released i ended up having an opportunity to work together with kevin lawler on um, one of his own uh projects he he was uh working on a commercial uh now open source uh, language called kona or sorry called, called curf um and i wrote the reference manual for uh, that language I was it sort of i was brought on as a as a technical writer actually and ended up being becoming sort of the de facto qa guy because i had to i had to test everything and uh, exhaustively uh prize through the language as uh, uh as kevin was uh you know adding things to it and uh, and making continuous improvements to it uh, that was a really fun uh collaboration um, then ultimately, you know, through a couple of, uh, of turns of circumstance, uh, I got an, an offer I couldn't refuse from uh, 1010, um, and I, uh, I worked at 1010 for about four years, uh, doing mostly K3, uh, and at the time that I left, I was the head of the uh, user interface development team, which was sort of doing uh, what you'd call full stack web development, except it's a pretty unusual stack because 1010 uses their own custom version of K3 for almost all of their backend infrastructure. And then the front end, of course, is uh, is the web, which is an unmovable object. So uh, there's also a, write a lot of uh, JavaScript and HTML and CSS stuff to that. But you're communicating with backends that happen to be implemented in K3. Is the custom K3 the macro language that Michael mentioned on the last episode, or are those two different things? Well, m macro languages is uh, a, a series of sort of layered query languages against 1010, the application. You know, you could think of 1010 as a, as a particularly smart uh, data warehouse um, that is you know it handles your data persistence it handles data importing and then it has a very rich ability to uh, perform queries generate reports you can do sort of rad application development on top of it um the 1010 has a very long history with kx systems and so to my knowledge they're one of the only places that has a source license for k3 and uh, since kx doesn't really maintain k3 anymore uh, and uh, and 1010 has unlimited access to it. Basically, they they ended up continuing to uh, make their own minor bug fixes uh, and uh, and feature enhancements. So it's just a it's an it's an outgrowth of K3. Most of the additions are you know there there's some little quality of life things, a few primitives that are sort of introduced from the K5 lineage back into K3. And, um, you know, some improved concurrency and, you know, 
inter-process communication, forking, memory mapping, kind of, you know, low-level mechanics stuff. Very cool. It's 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 definitely recognizable as K3. It's not a different language. It's just um it's just a little bit better, a little bit modernized. If there's ever an a, a Raycon conference, we'll have to get uh, either you or someone from 1010 Data to come and give a you know, the K3 beyond of, uh, you know, what, what's been done to the language since you, you know, or I don't know, some, some catchy clickbaity title that, you know, we could hire someone to come up with a title title for. Yeah. I mean, it, like, like, I think that, that E as it's called is, uh, is definitely the best flavor of K3 that there has ever been. But the, the tragic part of that, of course, is that it's extremely proprietary software, uh, that's going to be, you know, trapped behind copyrights basically indefinitely. I think, I think even if 1010 wanted to make it public, which I don't think they do, um, I don't think that they'd be allowed to given their, uh, their, uh, agreements with KX. So it's, you know, if, if you ever want to use a really great version of K3, I guess work for 1010 data. Link in the show notes for uh, job applications. Uh. <laughs> and I'd love to see a table of Ks with some comparison between them. I'm always at loss. You know, I, I guess for the K community, you know, you throw out like K3, K6. Sure, everybody everybody knows what which primitives are different and what's different in the data types and so on. The way that... Um that I think I would summarize it and uh, Stephen is free to, to give his own opinions after this is K1 was uh, an internal um, like non-public version of, of K that I believe was uh, a Morgan Stanley project. K2 was the, the version of that that became its own commercial product as sort of the nucleus of what KX systems did. And K2 is notable for the fact that it came with what some people refer to as the electric GUI. It, it's very, very easy to make data-driven UIs for uh, K applications in K2. And the K2 reference manual and the K2 user manual are available online. So there's very detailed documentation on how those are supposed to work. Um, K3 is sort of an incremental refinement of K2. It's just you know a, a newer version of the product, fewer bugs, some some nice enhanced features, but it's basically uh, this continuing through line. Although I think by the time that uh, that K3 shipped, the GUI stuff had all been sort of lopped off because uh, they, they were focusing more tightly on backend service uh, implementation rather than this kind of interactive analyst workflow where people were really fond of being able to make GUIs easily. K4 is the basis of the Q programming language. It's Q is implemented in K4. And if you download KDB Plus, it you can get to uh, K4. We have to kind of claw it open. It's hidden inside and it isn't really documented. Uh, the documentation is all the Q perspective, but you can see the K4 implementation of Q. It's just a file that uh, ships with uh, the thing. So you can sort of uh, you can reverse out how K4 must work in order for uh, Q to do what it does. Uh, K5 was uh, an experimental uh, project by uh, by Arthur that was originally intended as being part of Chaos, which would be like a freestanding operating system that's just K as the application's language. And the spelling there is uh, 
lowercase k, oh. capital O S. I have to admit, I made that up. <laughs> right, and K five, K six was an an incremental refinement of uh, of K five. Basically, whenever Arthur decides that uh, he has like a, a fantastically new, I, better idea of doing things, he'll just throw away a previous version and start over from scratch. Uh, and that's kind of the the K five to K six transition was just same basic language ideas, uh, but. Uh, but recycled. I, I I guess I should note that the semantic differences between uh, K5 and K3 are a significant like overall improvement of, of the language. Like K3 has a dictionary type, um, but it's very, very limited in what it can do uh, because it was intended to be kind of a, a correspondence between uh, parts of the K tree, which is K is sort of simple module system uh, and and a dictionary. So like a, a K3 dictionary can only have uh, symbols as keys. And in fact, it can only have symbols that are a direct mapping to uh, K3 identifiers. Uh, so they're useful, but it's not really like what you'd think of as a general purpose dictionary. In K5, um, you, you have anything is valid as a dictionary key and dictionaries have a, an algebra the 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 primitives throughout the language actually generalize to them in useful ways like if you comma a dictionary with another dictionary what you get is the union of those dictionaries and um there are a lot of kind of subtle details that uh <laughs> that are not fresh in my mind about how all of the the primitives apply uh, but the general thrust that arthur was going for was making it so that uh, all of the arithmetic operations uh, will work in a natural way if dictionaries are used to represent sparse uh, vectors. Uh, so, um, so that was, you know, sort of the the structure to, behind that. A another big generalization is K three uh, has uh, projections where you can sort of. Uh, it, it's like a, a more convenient way of, of currying a function. You have a series of parameter slots for a function, and you can supply any subset of those arguments in any order uh, and, and, and get a, uh, a curried function that has those arguments fixed. Uh, in K3, this is a syntactic property uh, where like, you, you have to use the syntax of square brackets in order to get that projection behavior. And in uh, in K five, it's a semantic property. Any application of a lambda with not enough arguments gives you a back a projection with some of those arguments fixed and a few uh, additional slots waiting. So it's just things like that. The language uh, in, in K five is much more uh, much more general. It doesn't have a lot of entirely new things, but the generalizations bring out all these wonderful symmetries that you don't get in the, the earlier drafts of the language. And it also, you know, as a, as a consequence means that the surface area of the language, uh, the surface area to volume ratio of the language is even more absurd than it was to begin with. And then uh, K7 is, uh, is, was another, uh, you know, a, a big overhaul. Uh, it diverged from, uh, from K6 in a lot of ways, syntactically and semantically. Um, and that was never shipped. Um, I, I think that there were like some hand-picked uh, users that did some high-frequency trading kind of stuff with it. Um, 
but it was, you know, it, it was never really finished. That was developed at Shakti, is that right? K7 was was the first thing that would be you know become called Shakti. Yeah. Uh, and then they skipped over K8 uh just just because K9, you know, dogs. I think Stephen After had something to do with that. Um and and so so K7 and K9 are both radically different languages from uh from K5 and 6. Uh 4 is a meaningful diversion uh and there's a clear through line of of just uh, simpler and more general from K two to three to five to six, and so some some of us in the open source uh, community feel like six is maybe not the perfect K, but pretty darn close. And K seven is a bunch of you know experiments in a different direction that maybe it'll pan out, but uh, he hasn't finished any of them yet. So I mean, we'll find out. And so. K7 and K9, or K9 is a evolution of K7, like the similar to how 6 was an evolution of 5? Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. So this is, I'm extremely jealous because I've always, this is one of my um, qualms, I think is the right word. There's even an open issue on a GitHub repository where I am comparing array languages sort of in the Iversonian circle and outside, like, you know, Julia and, and R, and then even some array li- language libraries. And there's an open issue being like, you should add K. And I'm like, I agree, but which K? Uh, because I don't really know, um, like, everything that you have stored in your brain is the same info I have stored about C++. Like, I can think about the different ways to write a different line of code in C++ 98 versus 11 versus 14 versus 17 versus 20, even versus 23. And I have all the different features catalog because it's what I do professionally. And like having that information is amazing because it's in your brain and it doesn't take that much effort once you've cataloged it, but it it is a lot of effort cataloging it. Um, And so I'm interested to get your thoughts because I've asked this on the APL farm discord of like, what is the overall community's take? And I think you just maybe just said it is that a lot of the folks in the open source community feel like K6 is actually the language that, um, you know, the the open source or K folks. It, it's the dialect that that there's mostly agreement on. Uh, and uh, so in, in terms of like open source implementations, there's uh, there are three that I would say are RK and are, you know, in, in some degree of a usable state. Um, Kona, as I said earlier, targets K3, um, and that, uh, that hasn't been evolving very much, uh, lately. I think it still gets, uh, some maintenance from time to time. Um, and, and okay, uh, that's my implementation and NGNK, which is Nick Nikolov's, uh, implementation, uh, are both basically targeting K6. There are minor differences between them, but for the most part, you write a program in one, it works on both of them, or it should. <laughs> um, and OK is uh, is implemented in JavaScript. It's designed to be very uh, convenient and easy to just try. Um, and it has a bunch of environments built around it that let you do things that are not uh, load a CSV file and sum a column and, or, you know, kind of the, the, the boring things. Uh, versus you know draw shapes and colors and 
make sounds, you know, the useless fun things. Um, <laughs> 2D graphics. So, so okay is kind of the, the slow one with lots of fun bell, bells and whistles. And then NGNK is the fast one uh, that I think is in the process of formalizing a, a CFFI. So maybe eventually it will also have uh, some pretty cool bells and whistles, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done between I have a good language interpreter and I have an ecosystem that I can build neat things in. Interesting. So I think maybe I just got my answer. It's K6. If if the open issue, I should respond, link to this episode when it's out and say K6 will be the K used going forward. And if Shakti and K7 and K9, you know, blow up at some point and take over spreadsheets and Excel and everything, then I can. I mean, it's. It's certainly possible, but uh, I mean, no matter what happens with that, they're probably going to be proprietary and closed source forever. Yeah. So uh, if you want something that you can just download and play with and maybe make modifications to, uh, if you want something fun to dink around with and maybe draw some graphics or something, try OK. And if you want to do something a little bit more practical, use NGNK. Awesome, yeah. And you can you can use either one to learn stuff that will be highly applicable to the other. Awesome. Steven? Uh, let me just try and recap of what I think I learned from you, John, because I'm I'm a little slow. I, that was great to get the, the the chronological history of the sequence of, of the different Ks. And dialect does seem like a good metaphor for them. Because Arthur's always been insistent that they're they're not different versions of the same language and there's no pretense of backwards compatibility. So I'm thinking about which of the which of the K dialects are actually sort of in existence and in use. And if I'm following you, K3 is the earliest, is the oldest survivor, well embedded at 1010, but nowhere else. You've got to go work for 1010 to use it there. There might be one or two other places that have it, but uh it's you know very, very rare. I don't you can't buy it yeah. you know as a company anymore. So you either have it or wow. that's it. <laughs> <laughs> then then there, there's K4, which is perhaps the uh, version most widely in use underlying K, underlying Q. Right. Uh, and you mentioned it's undocumented. I'll add to that as the KX librarian that it's also unsupported. KX doesn't promise that your K code will run from one version to another. The reality is it's actually very, very stable, of course, but we don't document it. We don't support it. We only document the queue. And then there's K6, which if I, again, if I'm following you, there's these two open source versions, the NGNK and OK, which are available. But the Whitney K6 is not around unless it's lying around in someone's laptop somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a virtual machine that's sort of my K museum with a whole bunch of binaries and many dialects of this, including a number of K5s and K6s. But I cannot share that with anyone because uh, because it, it's all copyrighted material. You know, maybe, uh, maybe I'll, I'll will a disk image of this thing to the Internet Archive with with permission to release it 70 years after Arthur's death or whatever the terms are for these things at this point. But uh, it's, it's not something that's unfortunately ever going to be publicly available. And then there's the experimental K7 and the emerging K9 and who knows, but but they're not here yet. Yeah. I don't, I don't think K7 is available anymore. That was abandoned for K9. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. just like five for six. Yeah, this is this is awesome. We're getting like a encyclopedic history of of the K's. I know Stephen Apter, he sort of gave us when he was on a little bit of the similar history, but it's it's awesome to get it chronologically like this all the way up to to K nine because it's yeah, it's like I said, it's something that I've it's. Um, and it probably it's this, the same way I said I have this knowledge about C++. It's probably frustrating for people that want to learn C++ and they, they start with the most recent one, but there's this whole history of changes that is actually useful a lot of the times when you're going back through a, you know, a Git history and you know at some point there was an upgrade from one to the other. And uh, yeah, awesome to get this info. Stephen? I missed two. Thank um, So Kona, an open source implementation of K3, and Kona is currently available? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And you also mentioned Kevin Lawler, same guy, Kevin Lawler Kerf. Is that is that an actual implementation of one of the Ks or is it kind of closely related? So so Kerf Kerf is uh, a a K inspired language, or in some ways maybe more of a Q inspired language, um, because it you know it has it has keywords uh, and it has uh, you know, a, a very large collection of primitives compared to most of the K family languages, a little bit, maybe a little bit closer to how many primitives Q has. Um, it has a, an integrated query syntax. Um, so uh, aesthetically, it's very much its own thing. But mechanically, like you can you can see that there are a lot of features of the language where there's sort of a one-to-one translation of here's the the curve way of doing things and and here would be the the corresponding k way of doing things um and there are a few other um so so curve was originally intended as a commercial product and uh that just didn't pan out there's uh, uh it, it is available uh with source code now including the the reference documentation is written by a fantastic technical writer um and uh I, I think that uh, he is actively tinkering with a with a curve too. So uh, I, I don't know very much about that, um, aside from the fact that it exists. But it's presumably in the same kind of lineage. Oh, by the way, when I when I got hired to work on the KX reference documentation, the curve documentation got shoved at me. Said, "Look at this." Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, I, I was really strongly influenced by the the K two uh, reference documentation. Uh, because that was how I learned K in, in the first place. Okay, so that's the history. Although I think it's a little bit different when you're comparing it to C++. Surely the C++ standards are mostly backwards compatible. Oh, yeah. It's it's completely... Well, the, the two big differences are, one, uh, a lot of almost entirely backwards compatible, and two, the standards are completely... well. I shouldn't say p- completely public because the ISO documents technically you have to pay for, but there is a website that releases the drafts. So you do have access to basically the ISO standards and there's websites that detail all of the evolution. So like it's all very, very public um, and it's all backwards compatible. The comparison though, is that like there are different, we call them versions, whereas K they're dialects, but it's, it's that there are, you know, uh, different ways to write things um, potentially from version to version and keeping track of that is it's, it's a task and epochs of, of functionality in the yeah. language, yeah. mostly climbing, climbing uphill. Uh, whereas in, in K it's a little bit bumpier, but see, there's yeah. a big difference. If you write something in C plus plus 23, then it might not work in older versions, but if you write something older version it works in newer versions, which means the, uh, the basic functionality, core language, is much the same. 
I, I don't know very much about these programming languages, but I would imagine that for just somebody getting started writing some basic things, it's probably more advanced stuff that's being added on top because the basic stuff is something that everybody needed from the beginning. So it was added right then, but that's not so for K. Right? And we have it's the same thing for APL as well. The core language is the same across the board mostly. Um, but in K, I would like still like to have a table that says like oh, these primitives, like the, the 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 most fundamental parts of the language actually mean something else from version to version, right? Well, there, there is actually a pretty a, a breakdown of how all the primitives do that on the uh, the K wiki. Um, yeah, which is really nice. Would, at, you know, I, I think uh, the user raised time did did a huge amount of uh, mm -hmm. the the early work on sort of driving that forward, and I provided some some clarifications. Um, the the open source K community kind of all um, emerged out of uh, out of K five and K six culture stuff. Um, so we have kind of the advantage that at least the handful of, of dialects that sort of circle around this are quite similar to one another um, for the most part. And, uh, you know, the earlier versions of K are all commercial and extremely expensive with the exception of, of Kona. And uh, a lot of the, the newer implementations of open source Ks have just referenced the documentation for OK as, as their reference guide. So uh, it's, uh, it's less um, heterogeneous than it could have ended up being if the early versions of of K were more accessible. Yeah, and I, and the bumpiness slash the difference in that there are different ways to spell things. Honestly, I don't really view as like a huge um, cognitive barrier or anything for me. It's like for me, it's the same thing as like translating in my head between BQNJ and APL. Like, there's three different ways to spell things. Sure, maybe because it's slightly more similar in the different K dialects, it might be more confusing. But like, I'm very used to like cataloging different ways to write things pro programmatically in whether it's Haskell, C++, whatever. It's more that like it's it's less well documented just because K in general is a very niche language compared to um, languages like Python or Rust or C++. You know, when some new thing comes out in Python, there's a bajillion blogs, you know, written about it and like 17 different redundant Stack Overflow questions. Whereas if I want to go find something in K, uh, it's there's way, way fewer blogs being written about the new thing in K6 or, or K7, right? Right. Well, and, and I, I mean, it also kind of helps that among all of the major array languages, if you pick any given dialect of K, it is by far the smallest and simplest. It has, um, you know, it, it has the smallest number of basic primitives, although it has overloads on them. Uh, the syntax uh, is is the least daunting. It's just ASCII. There are a few digraphs. Uh, you know, your curly braces and brackets and things always match, which is something that scares a lot of people about J. Um, you know, the the a lot of the mechanics of the language are very similar to to Lisps or just garden variety, uh, you know, imperative programming languages. So, like you can do things in a cutting against the grain sort of way in K as if it were just a normal language. Uh, and then, if you make better use of the language, then it becomes more array language like. Um, but it's you know it's syntactically regular. Uh, its feature set is small. It's the most like human scale in the sense that a person could just write an implementation of the language. 
like when I when I started with OK, uh, the legends about uh, K5 were that Arthur Whitney implemented this entire language in about 400 lines of C. So I was like, all right, well, I, John, a normal programmer, ought to be able to write an implementation of this in about a thousand lines of JavaScript. And I did. I even limited myself to 100 columns, which is not something that Arthur does. So, you know, like within an order of magnitude of the amount of brilliance that was going into the original thing, uh, you know, the it, it's it's human scale, like fourth is human scale. Anybody can can implement a fourth with a, a couple of weekends and a little bit of dedication. Anybody could implement a K if they have access to to good documentation and test fixtures. Which are something that's still, you know, a little bit lacking. Uh, implementing something like J from scratch would be a much, much bigger project, uh, possible but very hard. And you could implement, you could make your own implementation of Python with a tremendous amount of difficulty and pain because it's a pretty hairy language. Yeah. But then its entire ecosystem, no way. So you know, it's. Um, small things that one person can implement have a lot of intrinsic benefits. Maybe it's a good thing. This, right? It happens quite a lot that hobby APLers create hobby implementations of APL as well. Yeah, and that's that speaks to the simplicity of the language. Well, maybe maybe that's bad, because then you have a fraction fractured uh, community and, and ecosystem. The J is so difficult to implement that there's only one J. As far as I know. Well, I mean, some people could argue that the fractured uh, ecosystem worked pretty well for Lisp, but maybe maybe it didn't because, uh, you know. There... There's a reason for common Lisp, right? <laughs> I think it is possible that having, um, having you know, one very strong open source implementation like J and possibly BQN as well, it's not, it hasn't been long enough to say, but I think that kind of suppresses people from making their own implementations because, I mean, there's nothing you could really want more out of a J interpreter. There are a few things, but there's nothing like life-changing that you're going to add to the J interpreter that's worth, you know, building your own J for. Um, which, I mean, maybe if it was a very simple language, you could say, yeah, people would do that. But um, I, I think there's also the effect of having the implementation there already. Well, and if you compare it to all of the other open source uh, array languages, J has by far the strongest and most mature ecosystem. Like, you know, you could make a GUI application. You could you can load an image. You can you can do all of these things uh, related to like solving practical problems in addition to having a nice language. Yeah, and to get any of that code running, yeah, it would be a huge amount of effort because J is very complicated. So, is the OK implementation still a thousand lines of code? Yeah. Wow. And it's actually written written in um, uh, in a, a fairly older dialect of of ECMAScript. So if if I use some of the the stuff like you know arrow functions and stuff i could i could make it a lot smaller and neater maybe i uh maybe i should do a live stream of uh it's small you can look at it porting okay to typescript or something like that uh yeah because you tried the j thing right uh <laughs> i guarantee that you could make it smaller and simpler with a with a fairly like superficial amount of effort because it because th this is basically the program that i i learned how to write javascript with that is, um, that's inspiring. Yeah, well, Marshall just mentioned I, I had a, I don't know if it was like 15 or 20 live streams totaling some ungodly number of hours trying to port uh, J from C to C++ 20. 
And I think I got, I don't know, a handful of verbs done. Mm. Most of it was just like plumbing of getting formatting and how to get the C code running in C with a C++ compiler. And uh, it sounds like doing something similar for for OK and, and K6 would be like, I could do one stream. I, I mean, actually saying that out loud, I realize I'd just be eating my words. But like, it probably wouldn't take, you know. Well, the thing about TypeScript is like, you know, you start with JavaScript and then you just you just tighten the screws a little bit, right? It's a very nice path. You know, it's done when you decide it's done. That's uh, that's very inspiring, though, that you you wrote this in a thousand lines of code um, while learning the language you were implementing it in. Um, yeah, and and there's a lot of things about the implementation of OK that are like more complicated than they needed to be because they were based on fundamental like like you know flawed assumptions about the way that the language worked. That I you know if I if I started over from scratch now, um, there there are a lot of things about just the semantics of K that um, like the fact that you know, adverbs are syntactic entities, right? They they have no meaning at, at runtime, really. They, they're they just another... Well, they're just functions. Yeah, they're just functions. But, you know, when you first start, you're thinking, oh, well, okay, so like adverbs are are one of the, the conceptual entities that I need to have floating around. I need to be thinking about applying over adverbs and applying, uh, you know, monads and applying... You, you know, you, you start with uh, assumptions like the fact that, that a nilad is a thing that exists when it you know, very, very clearly is not a thing that exists. It's just a convenient expression. There are lots of things that could be simplified about that code. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely leave a, a link in the show notes to the GitHub repo and I will definitely be poking around in it and stay tuned. Maybe in the next five years, whenever my cycles free up, I will do some live stream of... Uh... If you took a look at uh, at the implementation of Special K, that's probably a little bit closer to um, to more like the way that I would I would rewrite it from scratch today. Um, so Special K is a, is a transpiler, and it's a significant subset of K. But the idea is that you're, you're converting um, K uh, syntax and general semantics into GLSL the OpenGL uh, shader language. Uh, you're writing a uh, a fragment shader and, and the job of a fragment shader is just, you perform some calculations to figure out the color of one pixel on the screen. And then that program is applied in parallel uh, as the final pass of, of doing 3D rendering. Um, and that has some complications like the fact that I actually have to do type inference uh, to make everything work. Uh, but the if you compare the parsers, it has the, a similar kind of structure in uh, in special K to the OK one, but it's much simpler and cleaner. Wow, is that is that open source as well? Yeah, um, I mean, it's just I just have it on uh, on my website. Uh, but if you just go to, uh, I think it's beyondloom.com/slash/tools/slash/specialk.js or something like that. It's just one source file, and. Uh, Michael Wallace bugged me uh, a few, like a year ago, to add a, an MIT license header to it, so that so that it's valid open source. Yes, yeah. Tips to all open source people posting stuff on GitHub: always put a default license, even because something without a license is very scary to. I mean, especially especially to corporations, but uh, even individuals, they they'll see it and it's not open um, source. Well, it's still open source; it's just not free. Uh, you can't use it. You can look at it. Well, or or, or it's free yeah. and it's not open source. Lawyers are 
Yeah, they view <laughs> they view no license as like the worst license. No, I shouldn't say the worst license, but well, that's not just lawyers. Yeah. That's the law. Is that if you don't license yeah. it, nobody's allowed to use um, it. All right. Well, we're already at the hour mark, but we're, I've already decided in my head, pending that my co-panelists uh, agree that, that you're going to have to come back. Maybe even if if it works out time wise for um, a part two, like immediately after. So we might have ever our first ever part one, part two, back to back. Well, we're not going to end immediately because I still have a ton of questions, and I'm not even sure if we got because we we sidetracked you. At some point when we started getting the history of all the K dialects, I'm not actually sure you got to the end of your K journey. You were, I think, in the midst of telling us that you were, uh, you know, I just finished working with Martin uh, Lawler, I think his name was. Kevin. And uh, then yeah, on on Kerf, and then you went to 1010 Data, and then it was there I asked a question about the macro language and the K dialects, and then we, we veered hard left, which was amazing that we veered, uh, and I enjoyed the conversation. But... So I'm not sure. Should we? Uh, is there a remaining part of that story that we should come back to now, or should we save that for part two? And maybe there is no part. Uh, or should we go to Q and A's that we might have about everything that we've covered up to that point? I don't even know as the moderator what to do here. So I'll just ask you, John, uh, what should we do? And uh, keep in mind, if you're free, we'll just have you back for part two, so we can answer whatever we don't cover there. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I guess I can I can give you a little menu of, of things that I could talk about. So I, I haven't really talked about Ike, which is a, a an interactive programming environment wrapped around OK. Um, I haven't I, I, I briefly talked about uh, Special K. Um, I haven't talked about Applejack, which is a fun little toy that I wrote. And I haven't talked at all about Decker and Lil, which is my current uh, array language uh, adjacent big project. OK, I'm going to well. We'll ask, I'll ask the panelists, but my thoughts are we should save all of that for part two, because I still have a bunch of questions that pertain to uh, things that were, like I've been trying to keep track in my head, but I've got so many that a couple of them have probably fallen off the stack of questions that I've wanted to ask um, about everything that's happened up till now. So the, I, I guess, do, do the panelists, are there nods of the head or shaking of the heads? I got a couple thumbs up, one nod. All right. So we've uh, decided live. <laughs> Listeners, stay tuned. Till either next episode, if John's available, or sometime in the next uh, couple episodes when we figure out scheduling. And uh, I'll start with a question, and if folks, other folks have questions too. So one thing I wanted to hop back to, um, this is going way back, closer to the beginning of the interview, is when you started off talking about fourth, is it occurred to me that we've now had, I think, including you, four guests. So... I think the first guest maybe that mentioned it was Vanessa McHale, who had mentioned that she had done a um, sort of stack-based language implementation. The name's going to escape me now, but she mentioned fourth on that episode. Um, Romilly Cocking, when we had him on, uh, fourth also came up there. And I guess, Marshall, when we interviewed you before you were a regular uh, recurring um, panelist, uh, and so actually maybe that makes you first. I probably mentioned factor. Uh, yeah, I think you didn't mention fourth, but you mentioned factor and I've always wanted to ask Marshall, but cause I haven't used it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll save that for another in my, my third podcast that I'll launch. I'll bring Marshall on and we'll talk about that there. But so that's, that's Marshall, Vanessa Romilly, um, which is not a small number of the guests that we've had on that like fourth has come up. Um, so my first question is after that long monologue, that was probably unnecessary. Uh, how did you end up discovering fourth? And um, do you think that there's something there that there's some connection or, or it just it seems like an odd occurrence that 
on an array language podcast now out of however many guests we've had, um, concatenative-based stack languages like Forth, Factor, Joy have come up on multiple guest episodes. Well, um, as for how I got into Forth, uh, part of it is just a general interest in programming languages and um, uh, to some extent, the esoteric programming languages subcommunity, which is sort of a, you know, a, a expansive hobbyist group of people who make little toy languages, often as a joke or sometimes to prove a point. Um, and fourth is is one of these, um, you know, the, these Euclidean ideals of a language that a lot of, of random stabs in the design space end up sort of converging towards. Yeah. So actually, um, I think I did mention that I, I made a lot of concatenative array languages first, but, but I mean, kind of before I wanted to care about the syntax, because in a concatenative language, there basically is no syntax. So um, that was what I would do for a while. I would write all these little languages that, you know, had fourth or, or whatever, like syntax and then array semantics. Yeah. A lot of people think of as expressions as being like the simplest syntax you can have. And in, if, in, in truth, uh, concatenative languages have the simplest syntax because it's just a, it's just a sequence of tokens that do something. Uh, yep. and you can create the illusion that you have nested structure, uh, if you want to, but you don't actually need it for those languages. As for whether or not there's some sort of deeper connection between, uh, array languages and forth, I think that philosophically very much so if you look at k especially and forth these are both languages that are made by eccentric creators with with their own highly distinct style of problem solving that is centered on this idea of radical minimalism you know in forth you bend the problem uh, in order to suit the language and the language to suit the problem in order to try to find a balancing point where the entire system is as simple as possible and in terms of languages you know fourth is generally considered to be a pretty low level language although you can build it up uh, to be suitable for a specific application you know k is is a comparatively high level language and frequently you're able to just solve problems directly in the language without introducing abstractions but in both cases it's a system that has been like viciously attacked over its evolution, constantly hacking things off and throwing away anything that doesn't carry its weight. So you end up with this, this thing that is, um, you know, instead of continuously growing and getting larger and more, more powerful, it is staying about the same size and becoming sharper and more effective. And I guess what's a little bit tragic about K is because it's closed source. For Arthur, it is this unbelievable tool where he can give himself more leverage by just tweaking a feature a little bit or adding a primitive or something. But for users of the language, you don't actually have that ability. Wow. That is uh, that is awesome. We got to clip that. We got to clip that, put it on YouTube, put it on the Twitters. Well, I mean, Twitter might not be around anymore. Um, <laughs> I mean, I still think it'll be around, but the internet seems to be disagreeing. Uh, by name. <laughs> I mean, MySpace is still around for a really long time, right? That's about my analogy. Does Yahoo still exist? I think it does. That's true. Yeah, Yahoo Yahoo Finance is uh it's it's um it's thriving. It's doing great. Um that yeah, paints like a picture in my head of a rainbow 
where sort of fourth is on one end of the rainbow and, and K and array languages are on the other end. Um, and, and another thing about it, though, is that um, fourth and K are both heavily about mechanical sympathy in the language. In, in K, the, the primitives generally map to a, a, to a simple, straightforward, and predictable thing that the hardware is going to do. You know, modulo goofiness about uh, modern architectures and automatic vectorization and pipelining and all this other junk. But like, you know, mod, in, in general, it's a language about simple, predictable memory access patterns, which, uh, you know, which modern CPUs like very much. And fourth is a language about, uh, you know, don't throw up abstractions, don't add indirection, just, you know, treat the machine as it, as it asks to be treated, know about the intimate details of what's going on and, and harness them. Um, so it's, you know, it's mechanical sympathy in both cases, but it's, you know, it, it's attacking the problem from a, a different direction. Whereas, you know, there are other functional languages that sort of start from what would be the nicest way to express something? What would be the, the clearest way that we could write our programs? And then as a as an afterthought, I guess I guess they have to run on a computer at some point. <laughs> Maybe we can figure out a way to make that fast. Maybe. Maybe if we, you know, if we jab the the hardware designers with a stick, we can get them to do the thing that we want them to do. Yeah. What this really want I, what I really want now after having heard you say that sort of wax rhapsodic <laughs> on the philosophical connection between fourth and K and array languages is there is Lambda cast that exist, which is not really active, but is a fantastic 21 episode podcast on functional languages. We've got array cast. We're thriving, slowly taking over the world. There's no OO cast, um, which I've wanted. There was a, a small talk podcast called, Small talk something, but it's not active either. You should just call it small talk. Uh, oh, yeah. But I mean, I like the uh, the regularity of, uh, you know, insert thing cast, um, which then brings me to now. Now I really want there to be like a fourth cast, except I don't know. What do you call it? Because like fourth factor joy. What do you call those? Like concatenative cast? That's a bad name. Stack cast? That's too ambiguous. Casts fourth. Well, but there is a big difference too. Um, we've kind of glossed over it, but... Um... A lot of these stack-based languages are very abstract, and they they define, you know, what what these operations do without relation to the hardware. Fourth, by its design, is uh, is supposed to really work based on the hardware. So you'll actually, I mean, you could build a different fourth for every CPU architecture you work on. Uh, so there is a really different philosophy around those. Mm -hmm. And I would say fourth is a lot more K-like and. Um, uh, other stack-based languages are more APL-like, where where it puts more abstraction between you and the hardware. Certainly, I mean, Factor is a very rich, powerful functional language um, that is pretty fast uh, and lets you, you know, dig down to a low level. But by nature, it, it is pretty abstracted. Yeah, and the the concatenative languages are sort of, you know, it's this theoretical design space, and fourth is actually like the you know, the, the, the grungiest, most down in the muck of that whole family, which also means that it's been, you know, actually used to do the most things, but. Yeah. I've heard that fourth is a lot of the times it's used in like embedded um, places where you have a very, very small, you know, constrained resources and you can get like something super small up and running. It is, it is 
it is the only language where in like eight kilobytes you could have an editor and a debugger and you know and 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 the library and the language and everything just running on the little microcontroller that you're attached to with a tty or something um in in almost anything that you could compare forth to it's you're comparing forth the live system on the little piece of hardware to the end result of this gigantic thing that gets distilled down and and baked so they're really you know not at all the same if I remember correctly, the language was originally designed for running a telescope or um, and maybe even to run on a clockwork. Well, the, the version of the of the history that, that I've read is that basically uh, Chuck Moore, uh, the designer of Fort, started from the, the point of he's working with uh, with mainframes as a as a physics student. And it was a big pain to have to like go and, and punch a stack of cards and then bring them over to the, the computer. And he came up with this, uh, with an, an interactive REPL system that would let him just compose, you know, a function on the fly. Um, and this system evolved over the course of like lots of different jobs. He took this system with him uh, from, from, uh, from task to task, refining it, improving it, making the interpreter more efficient and adapting it to this whole series of, of radically different weirdo mainframes from, you know, the era that it was in. So it, it was subjected to all of this, this buffeting and evolutionary pressure to stay small and to stay open-minded about, uh, about computer hardware. And then the, the version that ended up controlling radio telescopes was, you know, Chuck Moore finds his way to, to this job and like usual, he takes his system, customizes it, builds uh, the solution to the problem. And uh, and Elizabeth Rather was like a consultant who was brought on to, I think, I think like document and, and formalize some aspects of the system that was running. And initially she was like horrified because you're telling me that there's this gigantic code base that's being used all the time and it's implemented in a language that this guy made by himself and nobody else has ever heard of it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, but she learned more about it and became kind of like the second or third fourth programmer in the world and eventually was one of the founding members of, of fourth incorporated. So what does that tell you about the impression that it ultimately made? Um, so it was kind of like discovered and then became this broader thing that there was more awareness of and uh, you know books written about it uh, ports available for basically every every 8-bit home computer any any tinkerer now had access to it and there was this whole uh, Cambrian explosion of fourth stuff um, and you know un unfortunately a, a lot of that stuff has died out just because um, the the languages that it's competing against uh, could all get away with being a lot less efficient and a lot less interactive because computers are faster, there are more resources available. Um, portability became something that people cared about more. And it's difficult to have the benefits of fourth uh, as it's intended and also have like a standardized fourth that you can count on because it's, it's supposed to be tailor-made, uh, you know, ad adjusted for its its environment every time. A lot of people think that uh, that that ANSI fourth was sort of a bad idea because there is a standard and it's kind of complicated and it's not as fourthy as you might hope that it would be. 
It's interesting to hear your the warmth of your enthusiasm for this language. Well, it's a it's a nice language. I like it a lot. It's just not practical for solving most of the problems that I have uh, today. But if I you know if I ever get an opportunity where it's a good fit, I'm absolutely going to use for it. If I ever have to write a a power controller firmware for an embedded device or something, that's being implemented in Forth, no question. Yeah, it's it's super cool. We'll uh, we'll leave. Uh... Links in the show notes as always. And I, th- I think too, one one neat um, fact about Chuck Moore, and I don't think it has any relation to array languages, but he went later on in his career to found a company called Green Arrays or something like that. So so the Green Arrays um, hardware is a is a realization of in in fourth you have a, a particular virtual machine in mind that most fours are built around, uh, which you'd call a dual stack architecture. Uh, in in a conventional, you know, PC hardware or whatever, you have a you have this uh, this model of having a single stack. In fourth, you peel apart activation records into return addresses on the return stack and uh, parameters to to functions uh, and and the results into a second stack, the parameter stack, and these can grow independently uh, of one another and and shrink independently. And you can do a lot of really fun tricks by screwing around with them uh, at, at runtime. Um, but so Moore did a lot of work on creating fourth machines that were, uh, you know, small, extremely energy efficient hardware that was designed to suit the, the language and the language evolved to suit this hardware. The green arrays chips uh, have... Um, the, the GA144 is kind of the famous one. It's 144 cores that are arranged in a in a literal grid. Every one of those cores is called an F18. And it is it has an 18-bit uh, data word. Uh, a word can fit in in a sense three and a half instructions uh, with kind of a, an unusual and clever instruction encoding. Every one of those cores is extremely weak. And you need to gang them up and and network them together in order to solve any kind of practical problem. But you end up with this kind of semi-programmable systolic array. And it's completely radically wild way of of performing concurrent programming on them. Uh, Like the the GA144 dev kit is a pair of GA144s, one of which is running a complete... Uh, GA144 development environment, talking to the second one that's for your application, and you just you just plug the board in and connect to it with a serial terminal, and then you use one to program the other. It's wild. How do you know so much about this? Did you end up getting one of those dev kits, or you just read about it online? Uh, I don't actually have one of the dev kits, but I, I read all of the the green arrays white papers because they're really interesting. Uh, in one of my computer architecture courses, I wrote a a little simulator for. Uh, an F-18 core and, you know, basic development tool chain for it. Um, Cause I just think it's, it's really conceptually interesting. The, the challenge of course is finding problems that this is extremely well suited to is a challenge because it's this boutique low volume hardware because it's waiting for a killer app. But uh, you know, in terms of just overall energy efficiency, the GA-144 is insane compared like if if you're actually finding something that can dollars to donuts compare on um it's very very uh 
it, it uses sort of a, a clockless architecture uh, because Chuck Moore discovered that clock synchronization was ending was dominating most of the energy <laughs> consumption of his design, so he just got rid of it. Wow! And the whole thing was like you know it's it was designed using uh, Circuit CAD and simulation tools that he wrote himself that was running on hardware that he himself had designed. And, you know this this whole um, you know it, it, it's it's a it's a fun romantic image of the of the programmer you know actually levitating by by yanking on his own bootstraps and and creating a, a guardian of pure ideology yeah that's reminiscent of who was it that went and um created the latex uh, language um donald knuth knuth created tech or tech yeah tech yeah he was working on the art of computer programming and then was realized that typesetting and you know wasn't wasn't good enough so he had to go write a a a nice way to write his books and then a decade later he had uh he had tech you know i just and he ended up having to design two programming languages to do that right because there's tech and there's also uh tech's uh you know sister metafont um because he also needed a way to programmatically describe the typefaces to feed into tech so that it could it could typeset nice things that's where we get uh, the computer modern typeface from, and and you can actually use Metafont as a rather interesting interactive calculator if you're so inclined, because it's because it's actually a constraint solving language. It's not um, like a general purpose programming language. I don't I don't think it's Turing complete, um, but it's very a very flexible calculator. From what I remember, he did that um, also sort of developed literate programming that way too because i think a lot of his documentation the way he he could manage such an immense thing he actually wrote novels about what was going on in the in the in the programming yeah well the whole concept of um, literate programming as as he originally defined it was that it's not just that you have a nice concordance to go along with your source code it's that you need to be able to freely peel apart the source code and rearrange it into a comprehensible form interspersed with explanations and diagrams and and all that thing so that's uh tech and web is a is a system for writing a nice uh literate document in tech and then having uh being able to process process that and suck out all of the chunks of code and then glue them back together and it's a like a dialect of pascal that he used now the crazy thing is codefins was using this for like a few months, and then he gave up on it, I guess. But Codefins was almost literate. Well, I mean, it, a version of it was, there was also like a version of it that was written in Scheme. And, oh, but that was uh, a long time ago. Well, yeah, but, but you know, he he went through, uh, Aaron went through a, a whole series of of iterations on making the thing and then throwing it away to make make a new, better, clearer, simpler version. Yeah. And I mean, when you're that aggressive about simplifying something, uh, it's I, it's presumably possible to just get to the point where the linear order of the thing is clear enough and that all you really need are comments maybe as opposed to having you know the 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 web um reorganization and, and Aaron never said like you should be able to just look at the code and understand he said read my thesis instead where it explains <laughs> it so that's true so I think the literate attempt which was uh which was sometime last year was kind of an attempt to to integrate that more closely. And, and he wrote, you know, 100 pages or so on it. 
uh, <laughs> and then threw it out. Very Arthur Whitney-esque. Well, you know, some sometimes the, the act of write, writing something and throwing it away and then starting over is just the process to get something that's clear and works well. Oh, definitely. Uh, we, the One of the, the tragedies of the software industry is that it's possible to subject our prototypes to real world conditions. Like if somebody designs a bridge and they make a nice little model of it and they're explaining how, you know, they, we've done the calculations and th these are the stresses on it and this is what we think it could stand up to. Nobody is ever going to like look at that scale model of the bridge and saying, well, can we put this into production? Can we start running cars over this? <laughs> How's, uh, I'll, I'll give you a week. How about you just span, just take that bridge to span it across the, the water. We'll be fine. But with software, like, that's always a, a real threat. If you if you make a system that can be used as uh, you know as the real world thing, then it will be. And we're we're not given the opportunity to make things that that we can then throw away, unless you know a uh, an insane individualist carves out the space for themselves, uh, or if unless we design toy environments. That are specifically designed to make it so that you couldn't use them for anything practical, uh, but they allow you to play with ideas and and tinker and and do that discovery process of what's a good way to do it. And that's what Decker is, as like a teaser for when we do the part two, I suppose. Decker Decker is a beautiful toy toy box uh, that is not intended to have any economic value whatsoever, but it's fun and you can you can learn from it. Maybe I was going to say that seems like a a perfect place to end part one of this two-part uh, interview. Unless if there's any folks that have um, a question right at the, the, the edge of their, the tip of their tongue, not the edge of their tongue, the tip of their tongue. As an additional teaser, all my questions have to do with part two. Because as soon as you delineated it that way, I thought, okay, I'm not going to have very much to say on this part, but there's all sorts of stuff I want to talk about in the other one. Yeah, I mean, I, I got halfway through... Uh, well, we got halfway through this interview, and I was like, I don't know how how this is going to work. We're, I I got a whole a whole stack, and even some of them I've I've saved because I know I could I can ask them next time. And I was like, at some point, I just decided I was like, it's fine. We'll just do part one, part two. There's, I mean, we we run the show. We can do what we want, right? <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, thank you so much, John. This has been um so fantastic. I know our listeners are going to absolutely love hearing all about this, not just, I think, K and the array language stuff, but I think the force stuff is um, incredibly, at least for me, um, intellectually, like, makes makes me think, you know, of the, differently about sort of the landscape of these niche languages and that they're more similar than than we might think. And like you said, that there's a philosophical connection between them. And um, even comparing, like when you were comparing Chuck Moore and, and Arthur Whitney, I think is, um, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly uh interesting comparison and yeah thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing all your stories and thoughts and hopefully we'll be able to get you back for part two i mean we've been promising our listeners you're kind of hooped into it so hopefully you're not disappearing uh, up uh, you know mount everest for uh, the next couple months or something um and we'll be able to 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 get you on um i think i'll throw it to bob who will plug our email which i always forget um contact at arraycast.com and we do look forward to your uh, your responses and your questions and your observations. And I think there'll be a number that come out of this one. And I uh, again, I think it was fantastic. The amount of information, I've got a much clearer sense of K now than I have ever had before. 
um, really thank you for that. Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on, John. This was awesome. And uh, with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming.